So did you get my text about David Blaine performing magic tricks oh, for man. Kanye? I did get that. And I, uh, I still haven't watched it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was wondering, cause I didn't get a response. It actually, I, I'll be honest when I got it, it at first, I thought it was a spam message and somebody had hacked your account because the message that you sent <laughs> with it was like, whoa, check this out. Or, you know, like something extremely vague. It sounded like spam. And then it's like David Blaine doing something. And uh, uh, I can see how you could have interpreted it that way. Yeah. Um, but I didn't watch it. Is it. Did he did he mind freak you? He, um... Well, first of all, I sent it and then I immediately felt a little bit self-conscious because you spend more time on the Internet than I do, I think. And you just know about things way sooner than I do. And this is like something that happened six years ago. I also subscribe to David Blaine's newsletter. I'm on I'm on David Blaine's Substack. <laughs> um, I just thought that either you were like, this is something that everybody in the universe has already seen. So I'm not going to even acknowledge that Joe is trying to turn me on to something <laughs> or that you saw it and hated it and thought I was stupid for sending it for that reason. I'm usually really so good wanted, at replying just to clear. and uh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. That was one of the times. No, that, it's okay. Uh, so what happens in the video? We'll watch it. Maybe we'll talk about it next episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You heard it here, listeners. Uh, tune in next time for the exciting conclusion of what's in the David Blaine video from six years ago <laughs> that Joe likes. <laughs>
we're we're trying to to analyze the mindset that we have noticed uh is common to billionaires and a set of like recurring ideas um uh that uh that come up again and again in things that they say in their writings especially uh i thought the i thought one way to sort of introduce this uh that that might be fun uh i don't know maybe fun's not the right word uh would, would be to begin with uh with a marx quote because I think, just, I think it sets up a conversation for introducing and joe's rolling his eyes right now no, well no no it, it's it's a dry marx quote but it's a key concept it's a key idea and it's worth i think just saying out loud yeah, and every and and uh, most listeners of the show will be familiar with this idea, even if you're not familiar with the quote. Um, uh, this is from the German ideology. Uh, Marx uh, writes: the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas, i.e., the class which is the ruling material force of society is at the same time its ruling intellectual force. The class which has the means of material production at its disposal has control at the same time over the means of mental production. So that thereby, generally speaking, the ideas of those who lack the means of mental production are subject to it. The ruling ideas are nothing more than the ideal expression of the dominant material relationships, the dominant material relationships grasped as ideas. Uh, and so th this is uh, sort of foundational to uh, the study and, and concept of hegemony, uh, something that we talk about a lot, and, and which is, uh, you know, more or less the way that the people who have uh, wealth and power uh, gain the consent of the people uh, over whom they rule. What's interesting about the passage, though, is like, it's like, yeah, that's right. Right. The, the, you know, the people who have wealth and power are able to sort of control the public airwaves. Right. Or uh, the news. Right. Or whatever. Um, uh, uh, in order to promote the ideas that are beneficial to them. Uh, but what's not in the quote that I read is the, is the, the idea that uh, the specific content of the ideas in every epoch are different. They're not the same in terms of, uh, you know, they're, they're the same in the sense that. Uh, they benefit the people who are promoting them, uh, but they're different in their specific content and what those ideas are. So there, you get into like, you know, let's say you are a rich and powerful person. You get into this sort of like weird position where you can't just go out into public and brazenly promote uh, policies, for instance, that will directly benefit you, right? Like, uh, this is, Although sometimes they do. They do, right? <laughs> like they do. I mean, they do all the time, right? Like the difference is that like if you can back up your open promotion of self-interest by saying, yes, it does support my own self-interest, but actually this is in the interest of everybody. It's the way it should uh, be. Because it is the way it should be. Uh, and my own uh, sort of belief system and view of the world tells me that what I'm doing here is not simply good for me, but good for everybody, right? Right. And 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 I think that it's more it's more complicated than simply uh, free market fundamentalism. I think that there's a whole bunch of pieces to this ideological map uh, that uh, pervades the billionaire class. And the idea of this segment is to try to like discern what the key concepts or keywords are uh, to the mindset uh, of the billionaire class. And after doing the show for a few years now and, and, and thinking about billionaires intensively, we've started to notice some recurring patterns, some, some thought patterns, certain ideas that billionaires tend to latch on to, certain narratives that they tend to perpetuate. And this segment is going to 
try to unpack that over time. And in, in previous moments on the podcast, we've, we've threatened to bring guests on the show. The mindset segment is the moment where we will begin to, not always, but occasionally, invite guests on to discuss some aspect of the billionaire mindset matrix. So uh, in, in preparation for the segment, we will read a book or watch a film or read an article, prepare some text uh, alongside our guests that will give us something to talk about, and then we'll spend a, a while trying to make sense of it. And and hopefully that this will be uh, a new and welcome dimension to the show. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That's great. Cool. Um, for now, we're just going to move on to the end of the news segment, as we always typically do. Billionaires in the news. All right. Uh, this episode, there's really only one big story to cover, and that's the Pandora Papers. Pandora Papers, big deal. All of you out there in the world who care about billionaire news, big deal. It is a big deal. It, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal in the sense there's big data. Uh, I'm I'm curious to hear your reflection on how much of a sort of a big deal uh, socially uh, it, it is or will be. Well, I mean, I'm sure not at all. And in terms of like, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of like what it changes in in our understanding of what's actually going on out there, it doesn't it doesn't change anything. But it is well, a yeah. it is a massive it is a massive data dump. That maybe more people will hear. Maybe it'll be part of a gradual snowball of understanding. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, how does how does social change work in the world? Well, uh, yeah, I, I I think I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, I don't know how social change works. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Like, let's explain for people who don't know what what's the what are the Pandora Papers? So okay, so the Pandora Papers are uh, a trove of leaked documents. Um, I guess you could say uh, many troves of leaked documents uh, in the sense that they were gathered uh, or leaked from a whole bunch of different uh, financial institutions. Uh, there's like there's a million and a half documents or something like these large numbers of documents. I don't even know what they mean. Right. Like it's, it's just like a lot. <laughs> it's the biggest leak of financial uh, documents ever. Uh, and also, the, so like thousands of pages of millions of digital I mean, it's, data, it's at yeah. least a million and a half. They said uh, that also the largest journalistic collaboration to ever take place. It was global, right? Um, uh, it was very, very large, right? Um, and uh, uh, much like the Panama Papers and the uh, Paradise Papers, uh, which we've heard of, uh, the Pandora Papers, uh, quote, expose a system that enables crime, corruption, and wrongdoing hidden by secretive offshore companies. And that's really the key thing. This is about offshore companies. It's about where uh, the the wealthy elites of the world uh, uh, hide their money to evade taxes uh, so that they don't uh, pay their fair share. So it's a shady underground of very, very rich people all over the world creating shell companies so that you can't trace their money and that they can just use and and stash and buy mega yachts yeah yeah essentially and 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 evade taxes and and like it's like as you brought up like we all are everybody knows this already right like it's not a surprise in fact they already made a movie based on the panama papers it came out a few years ago right like that um that this stuff is not a surprise to anybody right and right. yeah, um, and the the ICIJ, uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, kind of go out, goes out of their way to emphasize the fact that 
the Panama Papers previously were responsible for taking down the prime minister of of Iceland and of Pakistan and uh, a number of uh, laws changed in in several countries. But you know, the like mostly things are the same as they were. Like mostly nothing has changed since these massive leaks that show uh, corruption on a widespread global scale at the level of like, if you are rich and powerful, you are absolutely 100% evading taxes. And so, you know, it's like, I mean, it's just like, it's so widespread. It's, it's astounding. It's just how it's done. It, it's just how it's done. And the, the ICIJ, like as, as much as they want to emphasize how these leaks are changing things, they also recognize that uh, there's a wicked problem at work, right? Because the people who benefit from uh, offshoring uh, are the exact same people who have the power to change the laws to <laughs> stop the practice, right? Like, uh, and, and so that I guess that was the difference with the Pandora Papers, from what I understand, is that it was they revealed more politicians and officials uh, in high positions. Uh, in various countries taking advantage of offshoring to hide money than uh um than previously i read i read a, a bunch of the pages of that document that you sent me and i just got tired cuz it just seemed like at a certain point like right yep obvious <laughs> yeah. totally treacherous bad kind of know this is happening there wasn't anything that like caught my eye that was like Wow. You know, well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I've watched a lot of coverage of this as well. Right. And and the thing that every journalist emphasizes is that none of this stuff is illegal. Right. Like that. It's not nobody's breaking laws here. Right. Like what this like the, the problem is precisely that it is legal. Yeah. And uh, uh, and, and people are legally allowed, even if it's against the spirit of the law, by the letter of the law, they are allowed to evade taxes. Uh, and the only people who can stop them from doing that are them themselves, right? Like, are the people, you know, are the people who are, you know, benefiting from it. So, like, yeah. I choose not to. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get, I, you, that is a good idea. Uh, I'll get to it soon. Um, I have <laughs> pressing concerns. It's not my priority right now. But, uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about one last thing uh, with the Pandora Papers, and this is something that might not interest everybody, but it interests me as uh, someone who's interested in media and communication. Uh, and uh, and I started thinking about this after listening to a podcast uh, by the Guardian uh, newspaper, uh, and um, a journalist who was involved with the Pandora Papers was talking about the kind of logistical concerns that are involved in a massive leak like this. I mean, it's just it's so much data. Uh, that it's hard to know what to do with it, right? And the first point uh, that he was making, which which I thought was was kind of funny and interesting, was that if you uh, uh, formerly, if you wanted to offshore money, like there was a time when you would have to pack your money into a suitcase and fly on an airplane or take a yacht or something else to another place offshore which obviously limits the amount of <laughs> right. money to the amount that you can carry in a bag right yes yeah yeah i mean so like very like very straightforwardly the human body places a limitation right on <laughs> how much money you can offshore and then of course computers come along and allow us to digitize banking and money can move around very quickly and historically that's when tax havens take off and once that happens of course 
part of doing digital banking is that you're also digitizing the transaction records of the money that's in your digital banking system, right? And so there's a, a permanent record of uh, a person's account transactions uh, that are in a digital form. So that can that can be the thing that that allows people to get busted for the very thing that would have been exactly for it them can, to it, do in the previous technological milieu. Right. So yeah, yeah. And and not only that, but the records are physically so tiny that a single human being could stuff all of the records of all of the billionaires on Earth into one pair of pants, right? Like you're not like Daniel Ellsberg <laughs> trying to like fit another piece of paper down there, right? Like <laughs> it's one USB drive and it goes in your pocket. Right? And so yeah. like, so, you know, on one side you have rich people carrying money and on the other side you have uh, 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 people working against those rich people carrying paper, right? And so, and all of that stuff is now digitized. And so like, I mean, one way to think about that, right? Is that there's an inherent insecurity like or an inherent security flaw with digital information, uh, at least when it comes to large quantities, that has to do with the carrying capacity of the human body, right? Like <laughs> before digitization, it was actually really hard to have large leaks of information because how are you going to move the paper, right? Like, <laughs> and so yeah, like paper is, you know, despite cryptography, like like there is a different kind of security that paper has uh, than than uh, uh, digital files. That's interesting, man. So, like, I think that that is is hilarious. And then, and then there's like there's a third aspect to it, and and this is something that the journalist was talking about, uh, is that like as a journalist, somebody says, "Here is 1.5 million documents. Uh, find some crimes in there, right?" Like. It, it as a, well, who can read that right like there's no way that any human being or even you need of, machine you, you need, need machines to read it right you need database tools you need to have a good uh a search capability and and querying functions and whatever like i don't know how journalists do it right but uh uh, uh but but one of the problems becomes like information retrieval right like somebody gives you and it's not just like the crimes are highlighted in yellow or something right like uh that you have to create connections between people between institutions and institutions and people and states and all of this stuff and you know it's not like any team of journalists knows the name of every uh minister of finance in every country or whatever right like they don't know these people's names off by heart right and so you have to cross reference a whole bunch of information sets and and uh and so you know i there's there's so much weird and interesting stuff about the leaks you know that we live in the age of leaks right and and it has to do with the digitization of everything in some way so i you know like i don't really have anything else to say about that other than like i think it's interesting to think about you know yeah um, and we've talked about databases a number of times in this show uh but anyway that's that's our take uh on the pandora papers um and 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 you know and we're not like reporting on a whole bunch of crimes that came out of it because we said like most of the stuff that's in the pandora papers is legal um uh, but if any big changes arise out of them uh we will update folks on the show and it shouldn't be legal by the way it should not be legal yeah <laughs> So today in my segment, I will be covering the rapper and entrepreneur 
the businessman, the legend, <laughs> Jay Z. He is, isn't that isn't that one of his famous lines? Uh, I'm a I'm not a businessman. I'm a business comma man. Let me handle my business. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was actually when we pulled him off the wheel initially very excited uh, uh, about covering Jay-Z because he's someone that I've been interested in for a long time. I'm kind of a Jay-Z fan. I think he's a, he's a interesting person, but it's turned out to be a, a, a very difficult assignment for a combination of reasons. I'm going to actually begin by giving listeners a quick peek behind the curtain of our production process here on Zero Sum Empire. Jay-Z fans in our audience may already know that Jay-Z is sort of famous for having a photographic memory. He never writes down his raps. He just composes everything in his head. And then when, when it comes time to record, he goes into the recording booth and just rips verses very often on the first take. And I'll just say that it's it's pretty much the same for Chad and I here on the show. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we have these incredibly absorbent minds and are incredibly gifted performers. And it's just easy for us to come in here and annihilate the podcast on the fly. Pretty much always, every time yeah. it comes out perfectly. We've never had to re-record a segment. We've never <laughs> lost entire episodes. <laughs> We've never had technical fuck up so bad that we had to throw an episode away. Uh, true professionals uh, who get yeah, it right on the first yeah, take. Every all time. the way down. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much, except for this episode, and I'm actually <laughs> going to let you guys know, uh, this is the second time that we're recording this segment on Jay-Z. I originally prepared an entirely different segment, and we recorded it, but it didn't go very well. And we don't need to talk about all the problems that happened, but as I see it... <laughs> <laughs> the big problem was that I really wanted to talk a lot about who Jay-Z is as a person and the subtleties of his worldview and his demeanor and his communication strategy. Yeah. And it was, uh, listeners, uh, I'd like to just interject here that it was very weird. And Joe went on like a five minute <laughs> rant about Jay-Z's gentleness. <laughs> and, and, this, uh, and I think, I think the mistake was assuming that other people had the level of familiarity with Jay-Z, uh, which, which I didn't, and I didn't really yeah. understand what he was on about. Uh, so. Right. So, it was a complete misfire in that way. I, I actually think that I was making it was some, great. And some at some point we'll release it as a as a bonus episode. <laughs> if you want to hear a very detailed description of Jay Z's vibes. So yeah, another way of of <laughs> of summarizing the same idea is that I I was prepping the segment sort of assuming that everyone had spent as many hours <laughs> thinking about and studying Jay-Z as I had. And Chad doesn't really know who Jay-Z is at all. <laughs> like he, he, he has time. no real framework. <laughs> and so there was, a, there was a, a lot of awkward, uh, a lot of awkward moments. So um, it was basically like, like trying to explain how to um, get, photographs from a phone onto a laptop computer to your parents. That's what, <laughs> that's, that's the level yeah. of frustration that Joe was feeling when he was talking to me yeah, about it was, it was. 
So we decided to take this in a different direction. Um, you know, beyond, beyond dealing with just me and Chad speaking different languages, uh, you know, there were other challenges I faced in preparing the segment. And, you know, one was one major one was that originally when we were thinking about launching the podcast and conceptualizing plans for the show, we weren't thinking about Jay-Z. Right. <laughs> Jay-Z is an incredibly atypical billionaire. You know, we, we, we brand ourselves as a podcast about, quote, mostly anonymous American billionaires. And the whole point is to introduce listeners to these insanely powerful people that they've probably never heard of. Jay-Z is the opposite of that. I mean, he is one of the least anonymous, most recognizable people in the, in the world, probably. Jay-Z is so stratospherically famous that, you know, if he happens to go unrecognized in public in any particular moment, that's a moment that could potentially go viral. So I'm thinking now of the woman who didn't recognize Jay-Z on the subway in New York City back in 2012. Chad, you never saw it. We've established that you don't know anything about Jay-Z. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you would not recognize him in public. But I, I'd play this uh, this clip for, for listeners if the audio wasn't so terrible. You, you kind of need the subtitles to appreciate it. But we'll link to it and people can check it out if they, if they want to. The gist of it is this. Back in 2012, uh, there's a video of an old white woman on the subway in New York who doesn't recognize Jay-Z. And this becomes, in and of itself, a sensational event. <laughs> there are articles in The Guardian and Rolling Stone written about this woman and this moment. She's invited onto Huffington Post Live for an interview about this experience of not recognizing Jay-Z. <laughs> Joining us now is Ellen Grossman, the woman who didn't recognize Jay-Z on the subway. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Hi. How are you doing? This has been an amazing few days for you, I'm sure. I mean, you've been everywhere talking <laughs> about this. Yes. It is overwhelming. So, so anyway, that's how famous Jay-Z is. And if anything, he's more famous now than he was then. Beyond the fact that he is very, very, very famous, Jay-Z is an unusual billionaire for several other reasons. Perhaps most obviously, he's black. And we were talking about this a little bit before the show. Uh, other than the in the news segment where we talked about Robert F. Smith, the, the guy who pledged to pay off the student debt of the graduating class of Morehouse College back in 2019, and then who more recently settled one of the biggest tax fraud cases in American history, <laughs> we haven't talked about any black billionaires yet. I mean, I'm uh, uh, right. I mean, I'm. Uh, no, no, I'm sure. Not I'm sure she'll come up at some point. We maybe we've mentioned Oprah, but we haven't really talked about Oprah. We haven't talked about Beyonce. I don't think ever. And I should say, now, even though obviously Beyonce is married to Jay Z, I'm not going to really talk about her today at all. She deserves her own segment in the future. Um, I'm sure she'll come up. There's there's not a long list of black billionaires in America, and there are uh, Jay Z twelve. Jay Z is definitely the first black billionaire who will be the subject of an entire segment. He's also the first artist, I think. I mean, oh, sure, other yeah. than de 
other than discussing PJ McGarco, whose student film we reviewed in a in a rather mean. And that was after our show uh, was released, almost immediately taken off of the internet. (laughs) Uh, Mysteriously, we still feel a little bit bad about. Sorry, PJ. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we've encountered any other billionaire artists yeah. thus far. We've Which encountered some movie producers. Art collectors. Art collectors, Quite yeah, common. for sure. Jay-Z's also an art collector, but that we're not even going to talk about that. Tough to say for sure, but I mean, I mean there's, there's no way that he's the first drug dealer that we've talked about on the show. Obviously, the pharmaceutical industry, that counts. They're horrible. We've talked about the Sacklers. Beyond that, though, I would guess that some of these billionaires have actually dealt illegal drugs at some point along the way. Some of them, so, one of them <laughs> sold a pound of Coke to somebody at some point. Yeah. I'm just guessing. There's no way to know. But Jay-Z <laughs> is, is certainly the, the first self-avowed crack dealer that we've had on the show. No one else on the show has publicly admitted to deal in crack. I think that would have come up in our research, yeah. So, okay, Jay-Z is a highly unusual pick off the roulette wheel, and he doesn't fit the the typical American billionaire mold. And his presence on, on, on the list challenges, I think, some of the basic assumptions we tend to run with on the show, uh, which is interesting to, to reflect yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, his, his story is... A remarkable story. You can go read about it anywhere in the world if you're not familiar with it already. I'm not going to go into detail here. I don't think Chad would tolerate it. But the broad strokes are that Jay-Z grew up in the 70s and 80s and the Marcy Projects in Brooklyn, spent several years dealing crack on the streets before segueing into one of the most successful rap careers of, of all time. And he's gone on to make vast sums of money as a music executive. Uh, he started a very successful clothing company, Rock Aware. He has peddled champagne and a range of other luxury goods. He's been involved with uh, a bunch of business ventures and in, in professional sports. Recently, uh, a rather controversial partnership with the NFL, which I don't think we'll have time to get into in the segment, but you can go Google and read about if you're interested. He recently sold the the streaming service title to Jack Dorsey for like $300 million. I didn't and, know, you know that. He, you know, Somehow he, I missed that Jack Dorsey bought title. So, I mean, he's he's got all kinds of business moves that he's playing out in any given moment in time. And he's now a billionaire. I think the basic takeaway is that Jay-Z is where he is today, both because he's incredibly shrewd and talented and ambitious, which I wouldn't say about a lot of the people on this list. But Jay-Z is is actually an example of someone who is all of those things and you know, the, the, the kind of proof is in the pudding in terms of what he was able to pull off. <laughs> there are many unshrewd people on this list. You know, but with all those things said, though, he, he, Jay, it's also true that he's an incredibly lucky person. Uh, I mean, he wasn't thrown onto the planet in incredibly lucky circumstances. But since then, as he's continued to apply himself in the world, he has has been lucky at crucial moments at many 
uh, at many points along the way. He very easily could have died or gone to prison so many times growing up in the uh, in the projects in Brooklyn in the years where he was dealing drugs. Uh, so many things, in other words, had to go right for Sean Carter to become Jay-Z. And in the pivotal moments throughout his life, things consistently broke his way. And he he readily admits this and knows this and is very self-aware about it. There's actually a video online you can find where Jay-Z is hanging out with Warren Buffett <laughs> in, a, uh, in a weird room with old white people. And uh, among other things, they, they talk about how luck is an essential component of success, which is maybe obvious, but also true. So I've, I've showed my hand at this point, I think. I think Jay-Z is an impressive person. I'm in some ways awed by him. As much as I might prefer to talk about Jay-Z's impressive portfolio of talents and his very <laughs> uh, complex personality, Chad has convinced me that this is a bad idea. So I'm going to take things in a, in a somewhat different direction. And since we are talking about launching this new segment for the show, the mindset set segment that we were talking about earlier, I'm going to use my segment to think a little bit about Jay-Z's mindset. All right. As a, as a, as a person and as a, as a billionaire now. Um, and, and compared to a lot of other people, characterizing Jay-Z's mindset is in some ways very, very straightforward because over uh, over several decades now, he's been very clear in communicating to the world precisely <laughs> what his mindset is. And it's pretty easily summarizable in a single word, which is... Rapping. Hustler. No. <laughs> he has the rapping mindset. <laughs> hustler. Jay-Z is a hustler. Uh, if you know anything about him at all, you'll know that he's built his rap career on this hustler narrative and, and hustler persona that's rooted in his life experience as a drug dealer turned rapper. Uh, and even though he's in a very different place now than he was 30 years ago, it's a mindset that he still identifies with in, in certain ways today. So if you really look into his body of work, uh, I think it's fair to call his relationship to the idea of hustling uh, an obsession or bordering on an obsession. <laughs> and his, <laughs> his obsession with the concept of hustling has led him to produce such songs as... One nine hundred hustler can't <laughs> knock the hustle. <laughs> I'm a hustler. <laughs> he was featured on a remix of Rick Ross's "Hustlin." He's really spent the last three decades stylizing himself as a as a certain kind of hustler who's successfully hustled his way out of the projects and now into the billionaire class. It was Marcy, '88. A great year for hip-hop, but an even better year for the neighborhood hustler. We wanted in. We went from being friends to forming a crew. We called ourselves the Rock Boys. We had no idea where this was going to take us, but we would soon find out. 
So instead of going into the biography of Jay-Z, which plenty of other people have, have done, there's many books about him and documentaries and uh, all, all kinds of information online, obviously, that, that you can go turn to. His life is very well documented at this point. Um, instead of doing that, or instead of exploring the economics of, of rap music or like the infrastructural con- consequences of, of Jay-Z's business exploits, we're just going to talk for a little while about hustling today on the show. Does that sound okay with you, Chad? Yeah, it sounds great. I'm interested to talk about hustling. Cool. You're going to talk about bustling at all? We could. That's a different episode. <laughs> I'm going to stylize myself as a rapper that bustles. <laughs> <laughs> this probably won't come as any surprise to you, Chad, or to any of our, our listeners, but there are a, a great number of people who have written a, a, a lot about hustling at this point, and also specifically about Jay-Z's hustler identity. Perhaps most notably... Michael Eric Dyson, in his recent book, Jay-Z, Made in America, spends a whole chapter summarizing what it means to hustle, focusing specifically on black hustling in, in America. So what's he have to say? First of all, he points out that black hustling in a general way can be both a good thing and a bad thing. Hustlers build and promote and strive for survival. And, you know, those are sort of admirable qualities. Uh, At the same time, they can also commit acts of fraud or other acts that result in grief or despair or or the suffering of others. And, you know, he he also points out that hustling is a deep-seated aspect of Black experience in America whose roots extend back into slavery. Uh, I'm just going to quote Dyson here, quote, black hustling was in part the effort to take hold of the American dream that was touted to the white masses. So it's like when when you're marginalized and cut off from the institutional pipelines that produce prosperity, naturally, in order to survive and in, in order to try to make a life for yourself, you have to play by different rules. And this is what black hustling in America is all about. Black hustling is a, is a stressful and often dangerous path born out of necessity and struggle for survival. And it, in addition to luck, which we've established is, is important for any successful person, being a successful hustler requires like specifically wits and confidence and intellect and you know, of course, uh, uh, all sorts of different other skills, depending on the specific hustle that you're engaging in. So like when I grew up, the word and, and not to interrupt, but the, when I grew up, the word hustle meant just meant like work hard. Right. Appreciate a little hustle up on that. Right. Right. But I think that that was like I think there's a, the maybe the older use. I did look up the etymology of hustling uh, in preparation and, and it means to shake or rattle. Right. Like uh uh, like, which, which to me, like, you know, like hustle the dice or something like, you know, like a hustler shakes things up and rattles things around, right? Like that, that there is a, uh, sort of, uh, outside of the, uh, the confines of, you know, normal business transactions kind of thing. Right. Like, and so I think of like a pool hustler. For the Paul or, Newman film. I mean, of course you do. <laughs> I think of it. Yeah. Dyson does offer a, a, you know, a relatively complex and nuanced discussion of hustling and black hustling in America. But ultimately my read is that 
Dyson depicts acts of hustling and Jay-Z's journey as a hustler in particular in a pretty favorable light, uh, which is fine. I'm going to, I'm going to quote him again here. This quote is a little bit longer quote. No matter what we think of Jay-Z's magnificent obsession with hustling, there is little doubt that he has willed himself by dint of his talent to change from a man who sowed mayhem in his urban community to a man who gives nobler meaning to hustling. For him, hustling is inspired by loving your own, rescuing and sticking up for the poor members of the hood he no longer has to live in. It it means grappling with the vicious forces of white supremacy and black self-destruction. So, okay, it's clearly possible to put a positive construction on hustling, and it, in the context of of, of hustling in, in, in Black America, I think it, it makes quite a bit of sense. Uh, but as Dyson also says, hustling can cut both ways. And here on the show today, as we begin to apply a sort of critical lens to the concept of hustling, I guess I'm more interested in talking about hustling in a in a bigger way, in a way that resonates more explicitly with the themes of our show. So. I want to be ultra careful not to conflate the concept of black hustling that Dyson is focusing on with the larger notion of hustling that circulates in our society and public discourse. But I do want to talk a little bit uh, about hustling at a more general level. So are you, are you you down for that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's also like exactly what we want to do in this mindset segment is like identify uh, a keyword or key concept uh, that makes up some part of the the class mindset that we're trying to map out. So hustling is a weird thing. And, and the way that I see it is a kind of like appropriation, right? Like if there are billionaires out there talking about hustling, like you turn on Shark Tank and Mark Cuban is constantly talking about, you got to hustle, entrepreneurs hustle, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and you get the sense that like, it means a di- it means a different thing than black hustling, which, which, so, I mean, I thought you said it really well, right? Like this idea that, uh, uh, the um, the promise of the American dream is foreclosed to uh, Black Americans, right? And so, wealthy people appropriating that that word. I guess what I'm saying is, I, I think that when people talk about you got to hustle, I think they're saying you need to work hard, and sometimes you're going to run up against quasi legal, you know, sort of things or moral <laughs> dilemmas, and some people are going to make one choice, and the hustler makes a different kind of choice, right? Like the hustler makes the choice that's going to be most advantageous for the hustle. And and it's almost like it it creates a kind of permission structure for people who to whom that American dream is not foreclosed to take shortcuts and you know, and like what what do you what well, do you so do? That, Why are that, you doing? I'm just hustling. I'm hustling. I'm trying you know that that's interesting. <laughs> the the flip side is that it's it's also a kind of directive to workers yeah. to work yeah. harder for their employer. Right. So, you know, like quote hustle culture is a concept that people are talking about in the in the world right now. Uh this is a term yeah. which as I understand it kind of sets out to describe the dog eat dog corporate ideology which which valorizes constant grinding and 90 hour work weeks and which inevitably leads to to burnout and stress and and de- 
depression for a lot of people. Hustle culture is consistent, I think, with other familiar right-wing narratives that put the burden of survival on the shoulders of individuals, regardless of the social and cultural and economic forces that disproportionately affect certain populations. I mean, like all of these, like all all of these hustle and grind people are just the idiots who still think that the people who get ahead are the ones who work the hardest. They're the only people who haven't gotten the message that that's not the case. In order to get ahead, you gotta, (laughs) gotta get out there and hustle. If you're not hustling and your life is miserable, it's on you. (laughs) You know, it's this idea that if your self-worth should somehow be measured and how hard you work and how productive you are, which is, it's a very limited lens through which to view life on planet Earth. Very dark. Yeah. Hustle and grind culture is not good. But it also goes unquestioned for many of us who live in America that this is just like the way you got to be. Yeah. You know, this is actually which a is good amazing. way to be. And and you will be happier if you are this way. right? The like best. People, it is the best way. It's the best. You're living your best life when you're hustling. Yeah. What it does is it normalizes struggle or misery or misery, which is also not not to be like blind to the fact that struggle and miser- misery is a is a universal human experience that happens in any sort of economic structure in any moment across history these things exist, but it exists in a very particular way and is being encouraged by the the dominant narratives in our society in a way that I think is deeply suspect. Yeah. 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 I mean, you want to talk about, you know, uh, hustling being a fundamental aspect of the uh, billionaire mindset map, right? Like what, what could better serve their interests than, hustle and grind culture, right? <laughs> like that, uh, yeah, uh, somebody who right. is just willing to entirely give their, their self over, uh, to work, um, for another person's interest. So Dyson makes another point about Jay-Z and hustling. And it's this, he points out that ever since Jay-Z became a rapper, his particular version of hustling has, has, involved or really centered upon like embodying and narrativizing the act of hustling itself. So through his music yeah. and the identity that he's created for himself, he actually hustles the idea of hustling. <laughs> and this makes him, in Dyson's words, a kind of meta level hustler, yeah. if that makes sense to everyone. So like, I don't know, like I, 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 I think this is sort of fun to think about. And with this in mind, I thought we could spend a couple more minutes just talking about this idea of of meta-hustling, which is arguably, I I think, sort of a cultural phenomenon right now. So Yeah, definitely. Obviously, rappers who rap about hustling and then sell their hustle-themed music are engaging in a certain kind of of meta-hustle. But really, anyone who's out there branding or packaging or narrativizing the concept of hustling <laughs> and then selling that package or narrative or There's brand so, is also meta so hustling many of those people that's like the main hustle that there is the main like the number one hustle is selling hustle <laughs> <laughs> and so like before the show we were we were talking a, a, a little bit about this in preparation and chad you you sent me a link to the Hustle and Grind website, which I didn't know about. Or, but so this is a company that brands itself as, quote, 
the the gear and voice of modern hustlers, <laughs> which is let me just pause and say that's kind of a weird corporate slogan. Like something about the phraseology of like the gear and voice, yeah. the gear and voice of. Yeah. <laughs> it like doesn't those are make the two basic sense to constituents me. of a hustler having gear and and, and voice. Yeah. It's like I've. I've never really heard those two things brought together in quite that way. Almost as if they were hustling through the copy for that image and didn't think about <laughs> yeah. it carefully enough. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that. Uh, uh, anyway, what the what what they sell? They, they sell hustler themed clothes and posters and phone cases and what do you think larry flint had in mind oh uh, well, you know that's the obvious thing that we're not going to really talk yeah, about i, I mean, don't I really didn't know. think of it until just now like it's a resonant word well yeah <laughs> i mean i you know hustler also had like sexual connotations right like associated with pimp and that and that kind of thing but like of course yeah of course, I don't yeah. get the sense that that's what Larry Flint necessarily meant. Like, what do you think? What is that all about? Well, I mean, hustle. I mean, I think it's a very. It has. To, it, it has to do with masculine identity. In oh a certain yeah, way, that's, you know? that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. All right. Question. Question asked and answered. <laughs> Back to hustle and grind. The 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 whole vibe is like selling products that that promote the idea of ambitiousness and leadership. And hustling your ass off. So what is it? Is it like energy, like energy drinks? And no, it's like like I was saying a second. Ago, it, it's like selling clothes and posters and phone cases. <laughs> you know that just are branded with like Hustle. be a hustler or like oh, leadership requires persistence. Or, you know that's that's what they're doing. So like on their homepage, they they post. I kind of like this. Quote the definition of a hustler. It's oh, one of the first okay. things that you'll see on yeah, on their on their. But, but the, their definition their definition turns out to be a more of a description than a definition. <laughs> it's not like any definition that I'm familiar with. But I'll, I'm going to read it anyway. So here, quote: There is a fundamental disconnect between the way most people see a hustler and what a hustler sees when she or he looks in the mirror on a bad day. A hustler sees themselves as someone who needs to improve drastically. On a good day, a hustler sees themselves as someone who could have done something different to improve their hustle. The consistency is the fact that the hustle always strives to be better. End quote. That's okay. <laughs> that's that's the definition of a hustler. I think we could do better here on Zero yeah. Sum Empire, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I guess what I what I want to spend a minute or two talking about here at the end of the the segment is like working toward a, a theory of meta hustling and capitalism. Well, you know, it's like, yeah. do you have any ideas about like what this says about, about culture right now that like, I mean, I, I, people are that, that the idea of hustling is one of the top hustles in, in, well, cause there's nothing else or economy. Right. Like, uh, you know, like, yeah. um, I mean, I think that, so like, you know, I think as you uh, said very well, right, like black hustling comes out of a particular foreclosure of uh, the institutional pathways to success that were promised to white Americans, right? Like this is not for you. Uh, so if you want, you know, success, you're gonna have to find your own way, right? Like, 
you know, and so in a certain way, the whole point of racism was that white people don't have to hustle, right? Like in other words, like that, it's sort of like, if you're privileged, then you don't have to hustle, right? Like that you did, you know, it's sort of like, you get to chill, you get to chill. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, I don't, you know, like maybe appropriation is not the right word, but like there's definitely a resonance that at the point at which it becomes impossible for the people to whom the American dream was po- was promised uh, to pursue it in a, in a realistic way, right? Like in this time of what, you know, what's essentially the collapse of the American dream that never existed in the first place, but now like the the collapse of the fiction itself, right? Like no one believes in it. Everybody's sort of aware that things are rough out there, especially if you're young. Everybody knows the statistics that millennials don't hold any wealth uh, as compared with older generations. Um, And so it's in the wake of a foreclosure of a particular kind of success uh, that the word hustle rises, right? So like- That's interesting. I'm not sure if people consciously appropriated it from black culture or if it just seemed to fit the circumstances that they were dealing with. Like, I don't know how it how it came about, but like- Well, I mean, like it, again, like Paul Newman's The Hustler was was around before- It's true, yeah. So there's- You know, Jay-Z's version of hustling. That meant straightforwardly you know, trickery, right? Which- Right, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. different. No, but I'm just saying the, the the word has mutated over time and, you know, people are yeah, definitely. using yeah, it for different yeah. purposes. So when like hustle and grind culture is not talking about black hustling, right? Like they're not, they're not on the same page about like a lot of stuff necessarily, but the, the resonance is where uh, both groups who are using the word recognize that some path to success has been foreclosed to them. And so they have to find an alternative route. The subtext of hustle and grind culture is uh, do crimes. Right? Like his, his, his <laughs> society is disintegrating. It's falling apart at the seams and you got to look out for yourself. So, okay. Like I wish that I could have talked about Jay-Z in a lot of other different ways. And, you know, if anybody out there listening wants to have a conversation with me about Jay-Z. You another podcast about Jay-Z. I could totally have fun doing that. You know, I'm not, I'm probably not the right guy for that podcast, but I am, I'm, I would be interested in that project. Happy to talk to anybody more offline. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, we do have to rate him and we didn't talk very much about him, even though everybody in the world should know everything about him. I'm going to give Jay-Z a one because he's an incredible rapper I think he's an interesting person. His politics are not abhorrent. He's not stealing money from people, as far as I can tell. He is doing some things that are potentially object- objectionable. I didn't go into this in the segment. He's pissed off a lot of people. A lot of people don't like Jay-Z. He's definitely a lookout for number one type of guy. And, you know, he should give more money away than he does. You know, we didn't talk about his philanthropy. He does some great things, but not enough great things. And I would get considering the fact that him and Beyonce live in an $88 million mansion. I wish that he would give more money away to people, but he's just not nearly on the same level of evil. You can, you can just say evil. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah. He's not. 
and I don't, I don't, I'm not going to put them. I have to give Jay Z a one on our list. That's my opinion. My opinion is final. What's your uh, opinion? I don't, I don't disagree with that. Uh, so I'm not going to start by talking. I'm going to start with a clip. Uh, this is a clip of the billionaire that I am covering today when he ran for mayor, a local uh, New York television station. Did a cute little thing where they had all the candidates running for mayor. This was 2013, I think. Uh, all the candidates running for mayor tell a joke. So they they pointed the camera. They, they told him we're going to. So this is on like TV or something or yeah, online like or a they're just. Bumper on a local station, you know, uh, something along those lines. And so the first actually the very first one in the segment, it's about like two minutes long. Um, the very first person is uh, Katz Matitas. I'm going to I'm going to play you, though, briefly before I like just like so. So you have a frame of reference. Uh, I'm going to play you the second person that they filmed. First, this is another person running for mayor. Random guy running for New York mayor. <laughs> random guy. I mean, he has to have a name. But whatever. Well, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, random in the sense that I have no idea who he is. Uh, but I, I, <laughs> I'm just going to play the second joke that someone told for this little puff piece. A second mayoral candidate in New York City. A joke that they told. Yeah, there's like uh, there's like ten of them. De Blasio, the winner, is uh, also on there. We're not going to play him. He tells some dumb joke, very much like the one I'm going to play. All right, let's hear it. Okay. How long does it take Mike Bloomberg to screw in a light bulb? Um, how long? Three turns. Very good. So, right, you get the idea. Boo. Yeah, stupid joke. But he, you know, he he set, he he clearly knew ahead of time that he was going to do this, and he had a little thing prepared. So, uh, uh, and, and they have a little laugh track in there, which is cute. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... What, so John Katzmatidis was also doing this, and his performance is a little bit unique, uh, but it gives you a good window into this guy's entire thing. This is what he's like all the time. Um, uh, so here's how he responded to the prompt to tell a joke. <laughs> I was in one of our stores this morning. I go over to the produce department, and there's two melons talking. One says to the other, can't elope. <laughs> and then, then I'm going out into the street. It's, it's raining. It's it, it, this slush all over the place. And there's two white horses coming. This is my dirty joke, so I have to make a representation. Two beautiful white horses coming down the street. And they slip and they fall into a bunch of mud. That was my dirty job. <laughs> okay, okay. Let me tell you what I love about this. <laughs> like, okay, not only I mean, is is that joke just impossibly weird and and difficult to understand and bad, but the producers of whatever segment this is knew how bad it was because yeah, the laugh track is super that. weak. Yeah, they put in the they put in like the groany laugh track. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like they were like it wouldn't make any sense if people were laughing really hard at this. Yeah. Because the joke doesn't make any sense. It's like, oh God. Yeah, that's like really I love bad. it. He, he he thought of like he knew that a joke existed, 
<laughs> that had that was like cantaloupe and playing on the words you know like the, con- the making it like a compound like cantaloupe <laughs> he knew that existed but he couldn't remember the joke and so he just kind of he couldn't come up with a framework for yeah, it he, just cre- <laughs> yeah. he created a scene in his own mind of two melons talking in a grocery store uh, oh, and he said in one of our stores he's a he's a grocery store magnet so he, and when he said in one of our stores and and of course no one watching probably would have understood what the hell he was talking about because they don't know he's a grocery store guy um but like this is this is his thing right like he is not a bright guy uh, this is why, like, he's a, he's a, you know, we got him randomly, but he's a really great guy to talk about whenever we're entering into or sort of like figuring out the mindset segments about, um, because he has a magical and very special mind. Um, and we're going to talk about that today. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a, he's the kind of guy that I thought we would got, get a lot more of when we started this show. Yeah. You know, I mean, and there are a lot of guys like him, but like we've, we, we've gotten only a few like guys who started a chain and made a bunch of money uh you know in in, in a one particular industry like we get a lot of fun well, I mean, people so, right like we do and i think the other thing to foreground here is like people listening to the podcast won't be able to see the video they won't be able to like look at this guy but that's important information in in understanding who he is he's a kind yeah. of a He's a kind of a caricature of a certain kind of, he's kind of cartoonish. If you went to say, uh, you know, an editorial cartoonist and you're like, draw a greedy billionaire, right? Like you draw yeah, a picture right. of a yeah, greedy that's billionaire. Exactly. Like yeah. they, they would draw John Katzmatidis, uh, who goes by Katz. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to call him the whole time. Cause I'm not going to say Katzmatidis. Um, but that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, that's exactly. He, right. he looks like an he looks like an editorial cartoonist idea of what a billionaire should look like. Um, yeah, and you can imagine what that is. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I mean, a billionaire grocery store magnate. Okay, what is this? The Kroger guy or something? A big big time? No, uh, you know, cats. Cats runs Gristides. Most people have not heard. I never heard of Gristides. It's a. I don't know what Gristides. It's is. a highly localized chain of grocery stores. It only exists in Manhattan. It doesn't even exist in any of the other boroughs of New York. Um, I lived in Manhattan for a little while, and I never still heard don't of know a Gristides. Yeah, was. I mean, I. But I was also a college student and didn't understand what money was. Well, yeah, you're. I mean, you're not. Trust me, you're not shopping at Gristides. It's not like it's a luxury grocery store, but. It is famous for just being extremely overpriced, right? Like, so it has okay. 1.5 stars on Yelp. <laughs> oh, God, you have to work for those yeah, stars. Yeah, you got to work for 1.5 out of 5. Most complaints are about how expensive the store is. Um, there is a funny bit from a uh, about Gristides, uh in the New York Times when he ran for mayor in 2013. I thought I'd just read that. Uh, garishly lighted, expensively priced, and home to a dusty decor that several Yelp users have labeled depressing, Gristides has suffered <laughs> mightily in the face of flashier rivals like Whole Foods. And this is something that I noticed in a lot of reviews, is that Whole Foods is cheap compared to Gristides, right? Like, it's it's just like twice the price. Sales are down, stores have closed, and the company has paid out millions of dollars to settle lawsuits over allegations of unfair labor practices and consumer safety violations. Whoa. Mr. Katsimatidis himself does not mince words, saying that the store once catap- that once catapulted his career is now predominantly a headache. 
quote, I've run this company for 40 years, he said. Uh, my life would be better without it, Christides. <laughs> Um, wow so he has this highly localized terrible grocery store chain that people hate (laughs) and charges everybody like basically it's a convenience store that charges huge prices whole foods prices yeah yeah yeah. um and you know and i guess rich manhattanites (laughs) are a captive audience or something right and well it's true i mean you know. Yeah, there's a lot of rich people. He made a lot of money off of it. And he has diversified into the Red Apple Group, uh, which does deal in energy and real estate. Um, but like, I think it's a family office. It, it, it seems like it's run by him and his son and his daughter, who we'll talk about later. And they're amazing. Okay. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it's small. It's not, they're billionaires, but like, they're not huge players in any particular industry got it and so we're thinking about mindsets anyway so i'm gonna focus on who cats is what he's all about who he is as a person his overall outlook i'm interested yeah i'm very interested it's gross i'll tell you ahead of time it's gross and annoying (laughs) um anyway here's a little bit about cats's aesthetic uh uh just Recently, in the last couple of months, he had Joe Piscopo do his Sinatra impression for his 73rd birthday party, where he had keynote speeches delivered by former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and former New York City mayoral candidate Curtis Silva. Uh, oh, so this is his like, this is his crew. He rolls with a crew exclusively made up of guys who have run for New York city mayor and some like, and some of them have gotten lucky like Giuliani, right? Like, you know, some of them actually won. Um, but this is Giuliani circa 2020, not yes. circa 2000. No, no, this is present day Giuliani. <laughs> the good one. I mean, Giuliani, Giuliani, I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, there was no good Giuliani, but the present day Giuliani the best is version an- that we've had. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Like, and Curtis uh Curtis Silva, who is I don't if you don't know who he is, and uh, uh which is understandable, but you, you may have come across the Guardian Angels, which is the group that he started. And they're the like New York City vigilante crew who would like hang out in the subways and and hang out in Times Square in the 70s or or whatever okay. and and keep the peace, right? And they wear these like nylon runner or polyester runner jackets and they wear red berets and they like i think they i actually don't know about this this oh, sounds insane yeah, wow just google image search guardian angels well i guess you're gonna find okay. a bunch of like actual pictures of guardian angels uh Gar- <laughs> google image search google uh, uh uh guardian angels new york city um okay <laughs> i mean they're idiots like they are they're trying to do like a urban neighborhood watch kind of like george zimmerman type of you know garbage okay got it and joe piscopo who he was on saturday night live at one point i don't know if you know who joe piscopo is he's like oh yeah of course he's He's only ever done one thing which is imitate uh frank sinatra and all these guys love frank sinatra and they love you know scotch and they love cigars and it's just the same stupid shit um uh but joe piscopo has a radio show on 77 wabc new york a conservative talk radio station that cats owns um 
Uh, okay. So it's a conservative talk show, but a uh, talk radio station, but Joe Piscopo also has a show on it where he imitates Sinatra playing Sinatra records. So, <laughs> and this is 2021. This is still happening. Yeah, this is not 1984 or five. This is actually <laughs> now. So, he is not like a radio station guy. He just bought the radio station in 2020. Uh, he also does his own show on it, which I think he did prior to owning the radio station. But since he bought the radio station, he has expanded his offerings into what he calls a a radio podcast, which to my understanding is a new genre where he does a radio show at 6 a.m. Sunday morning, and then he also puts it on the internet. So it's a radio podcast. It's a po- It's a recording of a radio show. <laughs> Do you think yeah. we could do the opposite with our a show and make a, a, yeah. a, a, a podcast radio? Yeah. Like start with the, we just need a, uh, a partnership. Maybe, well, I, I could call cats. Uh, I feel like I know them now. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. So the uh, 77 WABC in New York is actually a pretty important conservative talk radio station. Uh, this is from their website. Uh, quote, the station currently serves as a flagship station for syndicated hosts, Mark Levin and John Batchelor. Mark Levin has a, uh, show on Fox now. I mean, he is, he's a pretty big name in conservative talk. Uh, it's the radio it. home for Bernard McGurk, uh, Sid Rosenberg, Curtis Silva, back again, Juliet Huddy, Brian Kilmeade <laughs> of Fox and Friends, uh, the Ben Shapiro show, uh, and Red Eye Radio. Um, and so there's the full lineup. Yeah, there's some big names in the lineup. Um, it's, you know, uh, uh, it's nationally syndicated. So Katz's show is very weird uh it is not it's not like it's not a linear experience so what happens is like katz's show is a bunch of fragments of phone calls that he has with famous people so it's like the segments are generally about five minutes long and what i'm assuming is happening is that he's flipping through his you know uh rolodex of the rolodex of like conservative psychos uh, and saying, Hey, can you call up my radio show for five minutes? And, uh, you know, and so like the, so the podcast is like seven or eight guests each talking for five minutes. Is there a unified theme for the episode no. or is it just random? No, whatever talking point that person wants to get out that week, that's what they're talking about. And it's people like Gorka, Giuliani, Mike Pompeo, Stephen Moore. I don't know if you remember, he's like the Trump economist. Nigel Farage, uh, John Bolton, uh, every like every disgusting political figure from the Trump administration you can think of calls in. Um, and the one person, the spiritual father of the radio podcast is Dick, Dick Morris, uh, who I think I think he is like the maybe the mastermind or, uh, at some level because he is the first guest on every episode or at least he's on every episode. Huh. Um, and if you don't know who Dick Morris is, he's like a, he's a political scumbag. He's a Roger, uh, Roger Stone type of dude. Uh, he was associated oh, with it. the Clintons, okay, yeah. but like now he's like a conservative guy. Um, he does scumbag stuff, right? Like he does Roger Stone type of scum, <laughs> That's scumbag stuff. Yeah. This whole deal is scummy. Yeah. Scummy stuff. <laughs> um, and so like, I'm going to play you a clip right now of, uh, of Katz's show and it is syndicated on at least 20 other stations around the U S like, Oh, okay. So people all around the country can hear now in New York, 
it's played at 6 a.m. Sunday mornings. That's when it starts. But it's the city that never sleeps, so he probably still has a pretty big audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, well, I don't know about that. I mean, uh, as a, here's a little inside baseball for podcasters. Uh, he uses SoundCloud <laughs> as his hosting service, and sometimes he forgets to make the stats private on his SoundCloud. And the podcast, at least portion of his radio podcast, gets <laughs> significantly fewer lessons than than we do. Right, like that. He's maxing out between two to four hundred listens per interview. It's it's not very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I don't know. Maybe he has a big radio audience at at, at six a.m. Sunday morning. I'm not sure, but like I don't think that's the point, right? Like I think the point is that they're just generating sound bites for other shows, right? Like it's not about it's not about cats. It's about these guys getting to call into the show and talk in uninterrupted for five straight minutes to deliver whatever talking point they want. And then like, and then cats radio station cuts it up and other people can use the quotes or, you know, I think something okay. weird like that's going on. Okay. And, and, uh, and so like, you know, cause like otherwise why, you know, and I don't think Mike Pompeo is waking up 6am Sunday morning to call into cats radio show. I think they yeah, obviously were, recorded it ahead of time but here's here I, I thought we could listen to some of mike pompeo's interview and like yeah let's do it i want you to hear like katz's radio talent because it's astounding okay yeah I'm, I'm intrigued good morning america this is the cats roundtable john katz here it's sunday morning america under attack in so many directions who's best qualified to, to give us an evaluation of what's going on well, with us today is uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo, former congressman, former CIA director, former Secretary of State, one knowledgeable guy, and number one in his class at West Point. Uh, good morning, Mr. Secretary. How are you? Good morning, John. I'm doing well. Thank you. Hope you're well also. Thank you. Uh, where do we start? Let's start at the border. America is under attack in so many ways that... Uh, it's mind-boggling. Tell us uh, what, what, how you feel. The mic is popping everywhere. He's a total mushmouth. Like I can't understand. He does not enunciate anything, right? Like it's hard to te- it's hard to tell what he like. We can get away with that because uh, you know we're not billionaires. But like, I mean, this this dude's on the radio in New York City. He's he's not enunciating <laughs> anything. I can't understand a word he's saying. Uh, uh, he sounds like he's in a submarine. He sounds like, like he's, he's in a submarine. It's terrible sound quality. He's like. He's <laughs> he like just popping the mic all the time. Uh, so like Pompeo talks for like, and, and the other, the thing I want to, you know, the thing that like strikes me is like, he just, he's like, Hey everybody, welcome to the show. America under attack in so many directions. Yeah. Like it's instant. Well, I mean, we're, we're familiar with this, this whole yeah. I mean, it's, strategy. This is like level one, you know, level one propaganda sophistication. Uh, it's, just like, <laughs> it's just like opening your show with, get ready to be scared. Right. Like, uh, and then Pompeo takes the cue, right? Like, like, uh, yeah. Pompeo's like, Oh, I want to talk about the threats to America. So cats opens the show with, uh, America under attack, Mike Pompeo, take it away. So this issue of securing uh, America's borders is real. Our, our administration took it seriously. We, we certainly worked to, to build out the wall, but we also made sure that we knew who was coming in and out of our country. Uh, this administration has essentially given up. They've adopted the, the posture of the progressive left, which is near open borders. Uh, you saw earlier this week the Panamanian foreign minister cry out. She said she warned the United States 
that there were 60,000 Haitians coming to this country. We, we know the risk that uh, huge amounts of uh, drugs are seeping into our country. It's going to kill Americans. This is a humanitarian crisis and a national security crisis. And this administration seems to just say, don't look here. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We're not going to do a darn thing about it. Mike Pompeo is very concerned with the Panamanian prime minister crying out. Um, yeah. uh, but like, I mean, but you see right away, like that, that, that Pompeo is very good. He delivers the talking point right away. Uh, Democrats yeah. are radical left and want open borders, right? That's all you need to know. Right. The, yeah. the rest of it is marshmallows, right? Like the, the, that's what the whole thing's about. Um, uh, Mr. Secretary, I also had uh, the head of the DEA, uh, uh, Ray Donovan on the other day in New York, the head of, uh, in New York, and he says there's more drugs coming from uh, the Mexico border, a combination alliance between uh, the Mexican uh, cartel and the Chinese cartel, and they the amount they've captured, 43% of the amount they captured uh, is the pills. The pills will kill. Can you uh, can you unpack that for me? The amount that they've captured is forty three percent. Pills, the pills, will like what the hell? <laughs> like that was a. Do we want to listen to the end of that again? I mean, that is, I mean, it just seems like rambling nonsense. Yes, the pills will kill. Like it's like. <laughs> This is exact to me. This is exactly the same as the cantaloupe joke that he told at the beginning, right? Like he, it's like he heard he heard something, and he knows there's something there, but he can't remember it. So he's gonna just say the part that he knows inside of a bunch of like rambly stuff, right? Like so he does the same. Say he heard something about forty three percent in pills, and so it's like he's like forty three percent. They capture. 43% of what they capture is the pills and the pills kill. So, <laughs> you know, what else, yeah. what else can you say? Uh, and, so what else do we need to know about this guy? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I listen to a lot of, a lot of cats podcasts, way too many uh, as research for this. And the main drum that he's beating is the USA is under attack by foreigners. I mean, that's, that's the main thing, right? Like lowest level of propaganda, right? Like they're, record like the radio show these like short five minute segments are basically infomercials for like reactionary nationalists and like half of the guests that he has on if they're not like political policy heads they're economists uh because he's a billionaire and so he knows money stuff and they are all like the stephen moore guy they're like hardcore free market fundamentalists that whose only objective is to just like dismantle whatever tatters remain of the welfare state. Right. Like, and I think that if we're talking about billionaire mindset, right, like I think a really fruitful area of exploration for us in the future is going to be to look at the, the, the places where free market fundamentalism uh, and ethnic or racial paranoia and and nationalism just intersect with one another or coincide with one hmm. another. Um, yeah, I think it's that's like right. it, you know the the it's almost as if you can't be a free market fundamentalist without turning to nationalism at some point, right? Like that that uh, that, that that the two are are uh, almost inseparable, and uh, and that comes across in Katz's show really directly. <clears throat> 
So we'll talk about that more in the future. But like, okay, so I want to, I want to, I want to tell you a story about cats because I think that if we want to get into the cat's mindset and sort of get into what he's all about, nothing, I think in everything that I came across, nothing does it better than this story. Uh, this is, this is the universe that he occupies, right? Like, and my, my guess is that about 90% of his mental bandwidth is spent working on projects like this. Uh, like this is what he does on a day-to-day basis in my estimation. Okay. Lay it on Uh, us. Okay. So this happened last month. John Katsimatidis decides to invent an award out of thin air for top humanitarian uh, to be bestowed by the radio station he owns, uh, 77 WABC New York, to whoever they decide is the top humanitarian. Uh, they've never they've never done it before. They'll probably never do it again. You might be surprised to find this out, but the radio station has not made humanitarian aid a focal point of their radio work in any way. <laughs> Until this point, yeah. like, then, then, uh, um, it just a conservative talk radio station in New York City decided for some reason that they wanted to honor humanitarians or at least the top humanitarian. Um, and Joe, <laughs> I, like, I don't even know, I don't even know where to begin. This is so astounding to me. Um, just so amazing. It's a coincidence so strange. Like, I almost don't believe it. I almost. Can't believe it happened. It turns out that the owner of the radio station, Katz, John Katzmatidis, and the guy who ends up winning the award, uh, billionaire uh, Bob uh, uh, Unanawe uh, of Goya Foods, <laughs> turns out they've been close friends for years. Like, what are the oh, whoa. what are the chances of that happening? The guy who created the award and the guy who ended up winning the award, it turns out they knew one another and were like so weird. Anyway. He got the award, at least uh, uh, supposedly he got the award for donating food after Hurricane Ida uh, last month, Okay, which um, I don't know if you remember, but it wasn't in New York City. It was in <laughs> it was in Louisiana. You know, like it's, it's a little bit unclear what any of this stuff has to do with a local radio station in, 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 uh, in New York. Uh, but let's ignore that and just be comfortable with the fact that this is a transparent publicity stunt. Right. So Katz then invites politicians and reporters to a ceremony does press releases the whole shebang it's not this is not like a behind closed doors thing they set up a stage people give speeches the awards presented (laughs) photos are taken uh they're published in various news outlets um and it was it was it's just some humanitarian award that this guy just invented for his buddy yes they're laundering honoraria that's what they're doing right the way that i launder it is to pretend that it's not me it's my radio station it's some sort of entity that's so fraudulent like i could give you an award on behalf of uh oh our podcast is an llc so we could on behalf of zero sum empire llc i'd like to award you with the top podcaster award (laughs) But like it's very it's very funny. Um, but where it gets really dark is that politicians and journalists have zero problem legitimating this unbelievably fraudulent and uh, like transparently fraudulent uh, award. One of the people who spoke was uh, Robert Cornegie, a black Democratic New York City Council member uh, representing Bedford Stuyvesant. Also. One-time holder of the Guinness World Record for tallest politician. I wonder what Jay Z would have to say about that coming up in Bedstuy. I would imagine that Jay Z would not appreciate that. Um, 
But uh, uh, I mean, you know, this uh, Robert Cornegie has uh, apparently got some dealings with wealthy real estate interests in New York and, and is, is uh, maybe not, you know, maybe he's got some issues as a Democratic politician. But uh, oh, oh, well, another one, a uh, Democratic assemblyman named David Weprin. Oh, and another one named uh, Clyde Vannel. Uh, all spoke at this event. They also had their Republican. Not only show up, they speak. They spoke. They delivered speeches at the about Goya man, Goya guy, is. bogus humanitarian he was, award. Yes, after he was in <laughs> trouble for like being like Trump is good or whatever. Then the, all these Democrats. That's insane to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, why the f- why would they do that? It just seems like ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and it's very scammy, and it's yeah, it's it's terrible. So the, the you know the reason I like this story, Joe, is because Katz's publicity stunt gives us maybe the most straightforward and dirty and simple and stupid form of hegemony you could possibly have, which is a rich guy opening up his address book <laughs> and calling up his buddies <laughs> to together produce a reality that orchestrates a media event, right? Like they. That they can then amplify. The dude owns a radio station with Ben Shapiro and Mark Levin. So like the the news of the award is going to get out on, you know, all of these asshole conservative talk radio guys are talking about the Goya boycott and how the snowflake libs aren't buying beans because they're mad. Uh, And. Uh, oh, guess what, Libs? Um, it turns out the Goya guy was recently awarded a top humanitarian award. Isn't that ironic? Uh, if he's so bad, um, why is he getting these awards? You know, like so, like they're going to talk about it. Yeah. There's going to be clips yeah. from yeah. Democratic yeah. politicians yeah. praising the Goya guy. I mean, it's just you know an entire performance where they've engineered this fake reality. Uh, uh, to work as propaganda for their interests and themselves, right? Like they're, it's simply an argument that they and their values are good and and right. And so that's what he's up to. That's cats in a nutshell. That's pretty insane. It, it is pretty insane. His kids are the same. His son's a talking points USA or talking turning point USA. Is that what it is? Yeah. Turning point. Oh USA yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Turning point. Um, yeah, yeah, his yeah. daughter is the chair of the New York Republican party. There's a there's a really funny New York Times story uh, called uh, uh, titled New York City was once a bastion of GOP moderates. Then Trump came along and it's all about how the Katzmatidis family after Trump sort of took over the New York GOP. And I don't know if there was a power vacuum or what, but they took it over by donating all of the money that the New York GOP gets. And. It's only fifty thousand dollars. So, so you're kidding. They raised oh fifty-two thousand dollars between February and July from sixteen donations. Nearly all of what? it, fifty thousand, came in two donations from cats. Right. So, like, it's like I, no money I, at all. Yeah, I think it's like just a the- salary for his daughter. Again, I, I don't know what it is. Um, and so his daughter, uh, who I've mentioned, is she's trying to be a conservative Instagram influencer, and uh, and and to do that, she mostly like posts revealing bikini pics of herself holding like guns and flags and all the stuff they do. Um, oh so God. I wanted to show you some of these images and just like get your reaction uh, to them, because I mean they're they're sort of they're they're a little shocking. <laughs> Uh, so here's the first one. 
Um, this is her with a flag on a yacht Jesus. in New York City in the background. Oh no, I'm sorry. That's Miami Beach, Florida. What a what an idiot I am. I I I uh I assumed it was New York because uh, she's from. You confused York. your skylines. I well I you know I didn't look closely. I just assumed it was New York, but but I do see that it's uh, geotagged with Miami Beach, Florida. So here's a here's a picture. Uh, like this is what interests me about. Like this is the desperation, right? Like I mean. You look at this picture, right? Like, I mean, it's it's sort of like the skimpiest bikini and it's an American flag bikini. And it's, you know, it's it's just her being almost naked. And it's just like, happy Independence Day. I'm so grateful and proud to be an American. Hashtag happy Independence Day. Hashtag Independence Day. Hashtag 4th of July. Hashtag July 4th. Hashtag America. Hashtag American. Hashtag patriotic. Hashtag patriot. Hashtag God bless America. Hashtag USA. Just trying to... Hashtag freedom. optimize the search engine in whatever way. Yeah, this is what people do when they're trying to become an influencer on Instagram. They want people to search for the hashtags and then see, oh, a bikini lady. And I'm going to look at that. And then uh, you spent, you know, two seconds looking at this person. So maybe you'll follow that. This is like the sexy bikini version of the humanitarian awards. That's exactly. It's, it's just yeah, like it's the same thing. It's just the same nonsense. So very sad, um, very desperate. And it's oh just like, God. yeah, she just posts like almost nude pictures of herself and it and includes every hashtag in the universe to try to get people to look at her because she wants to be famous. And that's what life's about now. <laughs> I guess. I, you know. Well, that's really depressing. So that's it. I mean, the basic story is they're rich billionaires, intimate, like running New York Republican politics in some ways, at least in Manhattan. So we got to rate the guy. I've got a number in mind. Yeah. I don't I mean, know if you like, do. Yeah. Do you want to hear my number? Yeah, I do. Seven. Oh, seven. That's higher than I thought you were. I was going to say five. He's a propagandist, but he's a very bad propagandist. And his, but what we have to remember is. But he's associated with well, six. Yeah. he's. If you say five, I say seven. I, okay. Six. Okay. We can average like, it. He's part of the Pompeo propaganda machine and part of the conservative power brokers in Manhattan. Yeah. I guess. Uh, that, well, okay. So when you put it that way, right? When you put, when you put it in the way that like he is a part of the propaganda apparatus that encourages U.S. military intervention uh, in places that end up with a lot of, you know, of dead people, dead, innocent people. That's, that is very bad. Um, I think that what brings him down from a seven to a six in my view is just clumsiness. Yeah. He's just not that but effective. He's the bumbling. You know? Yeah. I mean, he's the dopey elf of, uh, of this apparatus, right? Like he is, he is, I don't think that he's turning too many people to the dark side. No, I think right? that's like, fair. I mean, his, <laughs> I, I guess I feel like his, his, his mission Whatever he's hoping to accomplish is like a nine. Super but he, evil. He himself, yeah, but keeps tripping is over like his own feet. a six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've we, we've reached the point in our show where we're gonna. Uh, randomly select the billionaires that we're going to research for next episode. And I, for one, hope that I get someone that nobody's ever heard of where there's zero information about that's totally not going to take weeks of my life to begin to try to <laughs> like develop an angle on. 
because Jay-Z was like an emotional journey. Well, I will say, unless we get somebody in the top 30, you're almost guaranteed. To, I know. To get your I mean, wish. we've been doing this for years, and I've only had one Jay-Z. Yeah, yeah. So. All right, here we go. And it is way down at the bottom. Number six. Okay, here it's we go. It's going to take me a little while to scroll down. 613. Who do we got? That might even be below Jay-Z, and he was right at the end. Um, we got, oh, man. Oh, this, this. Oh, well. Um, the only <laughs> interesting thing about this person that I'm seeing is it's right next to Kylie Jenner, um, who would be another <laughs> celebrity. But this is Axel Stosky, and he looks totally nuts uh he is a real estate billionaire he owns okay real estate yeah. office buildings and condos in manhattan okay uh, this guy there's guy. not gonna be there's not gonna be anything <laughs> on this guy um he owns a few buildings that made him super rich oh boy um okay let's do another spin And for our second spin, we got number 455, also pretty close to the bottom, but not way down there with the nobodies. Uh, we got <laughs> Susan Alfond. Don't know who that is, but her fortune was made. Only one one word description. Shoes. <laughs> Dude, my my kid, that's one of the 10 words that he says right now. He goes around saying, shoe, shoe, shoe. Okay. I'm taking the shoe woman. <laughs> All right, you can have the shoe one. I'll take the tough one. I'll be curious to see what you come up with for Stosky. Um, I want to thank everybody out there for, for listening to uh, uh, another episode or the first episode if you're a first-time listener. Chad, you got anything else for them out there? I do not. Look forward to seeing you next time.